Hi, and thanks for the invitation to speak today. Um, my name's Anne Alexander. Uh, I'm the author of Revolution is the Choice of the People, and I'm sorry that I'm having to pre-record this call, but the timing of the session means it's 1am in London now, which isn't a time I'm likely to be at my best delivering a meeting. However, I hope that this stimulates some discussion between comrades, and I'd be more than happy to come back by email on further questions if the organisers want to collect them. I was asked to speak, as I said, about my book, Revolution is the Choice of the People, which was published last year by Bookmarks. I'm going to do that both directly and indirectly in this talk. Directly in the sense that I will be talking about, for example, the development of the revolutionary process in Sudan, which is one of the case studies of revolution I examine in the book. Others are uprisings and revolts from what's been called the first wave of the Arab revolutions, 2011 to 2013, such as Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, Bahrain and Libya. The Sudanese revolution is part of another wave of revolution and crisis in the region. Other revolts which erupted around the same time include those in Algeria, Lebanon and Iraq, which are also discussed in the book. I will also be talking about the struggle for Palestinian liberation and how it relates to the necessity of a political revolution against the settler colonial Israeli state. This is also explored in the book. However, I'm also going to talk about events and processes which have happened since the book was published, specifically the eruption of a major popular uprising in Iran under the slogan Woman, Life, Freedom, and the latest round of crisis inside Israeli society, which has seen very large, apparently militant demonstrations on the streets, including forms of civil disobedience such as road blockades and in, in protest at the efforts of Benjamin Netanyahu's new coalition government, in which far-right parties committed to accelerating the ethnic um, cleansing of Palestinians and the annexation of the West Bank play a prominent role to uh, change the role of the judiciary and put it under more political control um, by the government. These last two cases can help to illustrate some of the core themes of the book and show, I think, fairly clearly the questions which socialists need to ask about mass street mobilisations in order to understand in which circumstances these will open up genuinely liberatory potential and set society on a route towards revolution. But not only that, in order to intervene and shape them as well. On the last point, one of the key messages I want to hammer home in the book and in this talk is that revolutions and mass uprisings which have the potential to set in motion a revolutionary process, even if they don't make it over that threshold, are not at all uncommon in the world today. We live in an era of mass revolt, which is not in any way restricted to the Middle East or even the Global South, as the mass strikes and protests in France over the pension reforms illustrate. This makes the urgency of building forms of revolutionary organisation which are rooted in social forces which can shape these results and steer them towards confrontation with not just existing political structures of power, but also the economic power of the capitalist ruling class and ultimately towards the, an anti-capitalist popular revolution led by the working class. I will return to this point at the end of the talk. So what are the key questions at the heart of the book? Well, firstly, the question of what makes a revolution? What distinguishes revolution from other kinds of social and political upheaval? What kinds of revolution are we talking about? Who makes a revolution? Which social forces in particular? And how are revolutions made? Which forms of mass mobilisation and protest are most likely to steer the revolutionary process in the direction we want to see? which it should be clear is not is towards not just shuffling the composition of the people who staff the top institutions of the state, but tackling the questions which are most urgent for ordinary people. That's to say the redistribution of wealth, uh, ending oppression 
and even more radical questions such as stopping the fossil fuel machinery of destruction which is destabilising the climate. As this talk will illustrate, the more that mass revolts are transformed into carnivals of the exploited and oppressed, the more that they are attempts, as Lenin put it in his pamphlet State and Revolution, by the very lowest social groups crushed by oppression and exploitation to rise independently and stamp on the entire course of the revolution, the imprint of their own demands, their attempt to build in their own, uh, their own way a new society in place of the old society that was being destroyed the greater chance they have of unleashing this radical dynamic. Let's return though briefly to the question of defining revolutions. Clearly the word revolution can refer to all sorts of things, including military coups, uh, which don't in and of themselves involve more than small numbers of soldiers, for example, in taking action, although they can take place in the context of mass mobilizations. It can also refer to mass mobilisations and protests which don't result in significant fractures in the state apparatus and end up being resolved within existing political frameworks. Lenin in State and Revolution was interested not in military coups or the machinations of the elite, but in protest, processes which involve not only lots of people, but specifically, as I said before, lots of people from the bottom of society, people outside the existing social and political elite. At the heart of his vision of who was in the, that layer of the people uh, was, of course, the, the working class, but he also included other layers of the poor uh, and exploited. He famously formulated a definition of a revolutionary situation as developing as a result of a dual crisis, a crisis at the top of society when the existing rulers could no longer rule in the old way, and, but which crucially combined with a crisis at the bottom of society so intense that ordinary people actively refused to be ruled in the old way. It's important to note that the crisis for ordinary people has to have objective dimensions. It's something that it isn't something just willed into being by revolutionaries, but needs to be driven by material, social and environmental conditions which make life unlivable for ordinary people. Another point that's worth emphasising here is that what Lenin is talking about in terms of the incapacity of the, uh, of the ruling class to rule in the old way has to be intimately linked and integrated with the rebellion from below. It isn't enough simply for the old ruling class to uh, be incapacitated through uh, defeat in war or a natural disaster uh, and so on and so forth. They actually have to be actively challenged by ordinary people. And this is at the heart of Lenin's definition of, of revolution. So let's move on now to talk about the um, uh, several case studies that I want to outline. First, I'd like to talk about the revolution that has been unfolding in Sudan um, since late 2018. In particular, if we start the question of how did the crisis at the top and, and bottom of society look like in the Sudanese context and how did a revolutionary situation develop? You could say that there were short, medium and long-term manifestations of the crisis at the top of the ruling class. Short-term uh, triggers included the dictator at the time, Omar al-Bashir, who'd been in power since 1989, basically running out of money to continue to subsidise key commodities such as uh, uh, key foodstuffs and, and, and fuel, triggering po mass protests which tipped over into a popular revolutionary movement soon after erupting in December 2018. 
More medium causes which are linked to this include the secession of South Sudan from the Sudanese state and the loss of access by al-Bashir's regime to the oil revenues of that region, which had been key for several, for at least a decade or so to maintaining uh, the dictatorship. Longer term uh, uh, causes included shifts in patterns of capital accumulation, which undermined the historic dominance of segments of the Sudanese ruling class from the Central River Valley and the capital Khartoum over the state. The, succession of South, the secession of South Sudan was part of this process, but there are numerous other armed movements across Sudan which have either sought to claim a place inside the state or to leave it and found, and found their own. In recent decades, this has been driven by mining and other extractive industries, oil and gold primarily. You could also add to that some of the geopolitical contradictions that the regime found itself in, um, the, uh, the, the way in which it was isolated uh, and under pressure from uh, Western powers, for example, uh, its relationships with other regional powers, which turned out to be somewhat, somewhat fickle in terms of the Gulf states and their support for intermittent support for the regime. What does the crisis, though, look like from below? Well, it had many faces, including poverty and hunger, environmental degradation caused by both worsening climate change, but also the impacts of, for example, extractive industries, collapsing or non-existent public services, chronic lack of jobs, and endemic war and civil violence often framed as ethnic conflict. All of these things made life uh, extremely difficult for, for ordinary people and combined into um, a, a, a huge pressure uh, on, on people at the base of society. The mass process, protests which erupted in December 2018 spread quickly across the country. They were given a political shape by a coalition of opposition parties, which launched a political programme promising to get rid of dictatorship and to tackle all of these manifestations of crisis, although often in quite vague terms. This particular programme was called the Declaration of Freedom and Change. The really transformative factor was, however, the rapid emergence of groups of organised workers, particularly in the health service, play as playing a leading role in generalising and connecting up the protests. They were primarily grouped around the Sudanese Professionals Association, a federation of independent trade unions and professional associations representing doctors and other health workers, teachers, journalists, lawyers and others. As the movement developed during the spring of 2019, other groups of workers were drawn into the struggle, including port workers, financial sector workers, workers in the flour mills and transport sector, including at the airport. Omar al-Bashir was removed from power by his own panicking generals in April 2019, but the movement from below continued to grow with two massive general strikes in May and June of 2019. The reformist politicians of the main parties to the Declaration of Freedom and Change eventually hammered out a compromise in August, which created a transitional government, including the same generals uh, who had been in power under, or had been part of Omar al-Bashir's regime. The transitional government failed to stabilise the situation for two reasons. Firstly, the generals had no intention of handing over power permanently to civilian politicians. They disposed the, deposed the civilian government in October 21 in a military coup, setting up a new regime which remains in power today. Although there are now new efforts uh, to conclude a new transitional arrangement and bring the civilian politicians back, um, this particular, particular efforts are being supported by um, the so-called uh, international community of Western powers, the US and uh, European states. Uh, including Britain, um, uh, uh, and also in the background, supported by some of the other regional powers. But just as importantly, 
The mass movement from below has also continued and crucially has built up powerful new forms of organisation such as the resistance committees which have morphed from being protest mobilisers to drawing up political blueprints for the radical reform of the state from below and in some cases even starting to act as alternative revolutionary authorities at a local level. Basically the resistance committees are neighbourhood-based revolutionary organisations. Um, they, in some of their most radical form, they draw together uh, large layers of activists in particular, in particular locations who mobilise for protests, but also sometimes encroach on and challenge the operations of the state. A good example of this has been, for example, in uh, poorer areas of, uh, of Khartoum um, and other areas around the country where the resistance committees, for example, took on the role of trying to guarantee the bread supply um, for ordinary people, uh, where the resistance committees have also been involved in, in, in trying to mobilise um, solidarity for strikes um, and also getting involved in kind of social protests of a much, much, broader, uh, much broader scale. Meanwhile, there have also been waves of mass strikes, such as those recently by, uh, by the teachers union, by health workers and other public sector workers, targeting both the military regime and demanding action over the acute social crisis. In, so, in a sense, there has been a stalemate um, ha, ha, has emerged, which is an uneasy one. It cannot, it cannot continue um, in that the movement from below has been too strong for the military to crush it. Um, but on the other hand, it hasn't made a breakthrough and actually broken down the resilience of the uh, of the state. Hence, the attempt to come up with a new compromise, um, which, uh, as I'll come back to the end of, uh, at the end of the meeting, will face the same problems as the uh, reformist politicians did back in 2019 when they did they, they signed their first deal with the military. Let's look now, though, at the uprising in Iran, which broke out last September in response to the murder of a young Kurdish woman, Gina Mahsa Amini, by the morality police for allegedly failing to conform to the strict dress laws of the Islamic Republic. Just a note here about um, Gina's name. Um, Gina was her, as her, her given name and her Kurdish name, but she, um, because of the, the, the racism basically of the Iranian state, she had to have uh, also a Farsi name. Uh, hence, she was known when she when her um, when her death first came to the attention of the world as Massa Armini. Uh, however, to her family, she was known as Gina. Where the uprising in Sudan started in the economic realm, or rather in the realm of pressures on day-to-day -day survival, as people couldn't find bread or cooking gas, in the case of Iran, the massive protests began with political demands against the specific institutions of the regime and its oppressive laws which target women in general and which are experienced, as in Gina's case, even more intensely by national religious minorities such as the Kurds. But the uprising quickly took on a much wider character, connecting with anger and frustration from those at the bottom of Iranian society over economic, worsening economic conditions. The uprising, for example, follows several years where Iranian workers have developed a culture of protests over social, economic and political demands. These have included demands for pay, job security and the right to organise at work. Some groups of workers have begun to develop independent trade union organisation and strike organisation, which is outside of the control of the regime's labour bodies. Key groups of workers who've taken action in recent years include oil workers, teachers, sugar refinery workers, and transport workers, such as bus drivers in Tehran. Trade unionists and strike organisers have been arrested and jailed by the regime. 
One of the major drivers for workers' protests and strikes, as well as for um, uh, more spontaneous forms of social protest, riots and urban uprisings, has been the worsening economic situation for ordinary people. Living standards have been badly affected by a crisis which is exacerbated by the harsh regime of sanctions imposed by the US on Iran. However, despite the regime's efforts to pin blame for this on the US and Western governments, it's clear to many workers that the Iranian ruling class is hoarding wealth and continuing to enrich itself while ordinary people suffer. Moreover, despite its anti-Western rhetoric, the Iranian ruling class uses similar mechanisms to governments in the neoliberal era around the world, including huge attacks on job security, expanding the numbers of contract workers and shrinking the number of permanent jobs, for example, austerity, cuts to basic services and privatisation. But compared to Sudan, workers' protests as workers through strikes and through workplace-based organisations have not been integral to the development of the protest movement, a key reason why repression has been relatively successful in breaking its momentum and why the regime has carved out a breathing space for the, for the moment. Nevertheless, I think you can see clearly the potential for the situation in Iran to move towards a revolutionary crisis if the movement from below manages to connect the streets and the workplaces in struggle. Let's take now the question of how to understand the protests over judicial reform in Israel. Israeli Jewish society has been rocked by a wave of huge protests in recent months, triggered by the attempt of the current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies to assert party political control over the judiciary. In Netanyahu's case, this is driven by a desire to escape accountability now or in future for his personal corruption. His allies on the far right are driving, uh, by contrast, towards twin political and military goals of asserting the religious Zionist character of the Israeli state and removing Palestinians as obstacles to the realisation of Jewish supremacy over the territories Israel claims as its own. The images from the streets of Tel Aviv and other Israeli cities have shown protesters using a repertoire of collective action, which at some levels is quite similar to the beginnings of some of the uprisings discussed in my book and other mass mobilizations elsewhere. Uh, there are very large protests, sit-ins, uh, forms of civil disobedience such as road blockades, complete with burning barricades. Protesters are almost exclusively carrying the national flag, but they're being physically confronted and attacked by the police who've used water cannons and tear gas. The language from the protesters' spokespeople has articulated an urgent danger to democracy, the threat of a coup against the judiciary, of threats to women and LGBT plus people from the far right. There was even a threat of a general strike and signs of fracture within the armed forces, with senior former generals and figures from the security forces saying they supported the protests and, in some, and some reservists signing a public declaration uh, refusing to serve under the current government. Yet are these protests the direct expression of life becoming unlivable for people at the bottom of Israeli society? Hardly, given the predominance of middle class and even the very wealthy, such as workers in the high-tech industry on many of the protests. The roster of, for of former prime ministers, senior politicians and former directors of the security services on the movement's platforms or declaring their public support for it is another clue. Another is found in the absence of Palestinians and the hostility of demonstrators and their leaders towards raising or even mentioning anything related to occupation and apartheid. As Palestinians and the small minority of Jewish Israelis who oppose both of these things are pointed out, the very idea that there is an Israeli democracy to save is a myth which covers up the reality of an authoritarian military occupation based on principles of racial and religious segregation, which even liberal international NGOs such as Amnesty International rightly characterise as a form of apartheid. 
Nevertheless, these protests are important because of what they reveal about the depth of crisis across historic Palestine. In fact, I would argue they're a sign that a mutually self-reinforcing dynamic of crisis is at work both at the bottom of society and the top. They're a sign that the, of the, that the potential for a once-in-a-generation political and explosion, ex, social explosion is increasing. The character that this explosion will take is yet to be determined. It could open up a dynamic of revolutionary crisis if it's shaped by the mobilisation of Palestine, Palestinians from below, with the Palestinian working class at its heart. But if the religious Zionist right has its way, it will involve intensified ethnic cleansing, which could easily take the form of further mass expulsions of Palestinian communities. The fact that Netanyahu's allies want to do this is not speculation. They've published quite detailed plans on how to achieve it, and they now formally command or politically control substantial military, police and paramilitary forces who they have told that defending Jewish supremacy is their religious duty. The, offense, the events of the Palestinian Unity Intifada of May 2021 pointed simultaneously in hopeful and horrifying directions. They were hopeful in the fact that Palestinian strikes and mass protests across the whole of historic Palestine, that's to say the uh, involving um, uh, protests and mobilisation in the West Bank, within the Palestine of 48 uh, and in the Gaza Strip, shocked the Israeli establishment and showed the potential for revival in the Palestinian movement from below. They were horrifying, however, in the generalisation of techniques of violence and the pogrom-like racist attacks on individual Palestinians and Palestinian communities, which have long been common in the settler-dominated areas of the West Bank, proliferating across the so-called mixed cities like Lid and Haifa in that part of Palestine which was taken to form the Israeli state in 1948. What's the missing link here? I would argue it's the role of the working class in driving forward resistance from below and posing a structural challenge to the functioning of the apartheid state. Here it's important to note that the working class in historic Palestine is fractured in several components and that Palestinian workers are not a majority in, in that society like Iranian workers, nor are they the best organised component of the direct producers as they are in Sudan. This underscores that a revolutionary answer to the crisis in historic Palestine can't be separated from the question of revolution in the neighbouring states and the wider region, especially Egypt, Lebanon and Jordan, given the central role played by the Israeli state in the system of Western imperialism across the region. This brings us on finally to the question of the role of the state. <laughs> All of these examples show the importance of understanding that the state is not a neutral arbiter but an instrument of ruling class power. Mass movements which come up against the state have to take this into account. Even where they're led by people with reformist goals, they're more likely to succeed in form forcing concessions from authoritarian and right-wing regimes over democratic reforms, where they mobilise the social power of the working class. This was a major lesson of the revolutions I looked at in my book. In, Egypt, in Tunisia and Egypt, for example, mass strikes combined with street demonstrations played a crucial role in forcing concessions from the regime, including major retreats such as the removals of, of the dictators from power. Street demonstrations on their own did not have the same effect. In Tunisia, it took a week of regional and national general strikes before the dictator Ben Ali fled the country on 14, 14th of January 2011. This was after more than a month of demonstrations. In Egypt, it was only when mass strikes began to paralyse key transport services, the Suez Canal, the telecom networks and public services after 8th of February that the fate of dictator Mubarak was sealed. He was removed from power by his own generals on 11th of February 2011. Finally, um, all of these examples underline the importance of having a revolutionary party 
a party which is pushing towards permanent revolution, which won't stop at the boundaries set by the existing state and the capitalist ruling class behind it, one which is capable of linking the struggle against oppression with the fight against exploitation, will not compromise with the state in order to push for a revolution that can take us to a better world. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.